0: all right good evening everybody how you guys doing man i tell you i love i love going to much less pastoring a church that allows the spirit to move um as he sees fit rather than to try and just cram everything into our little program and that's no more true than tonight sitting here listening to to um the worship was just incredible but then then when, when Weston shared his word on hope, it started to really resonate with me that there are so many people who don't have hope. And it's easy enough to just say, I know Jesus, so I'll end up in heaven. You can say those words if you are a believer in Christ. You can say those words, but do we all really grasp it in our heart? Jeremy, I'm getting some reverb. Can you turn me down just a little bit? Um, And then listening to Pastor Jack go into the song, I can only imagine. That that practically almost made me break down. And, And here's why, because I think there are people in here who literally can only imagine. It's like a faraway dream that they might end up in the presence of the Father someday. They know what the word says, they know what they've been told about, yes, if you're a believer, you're gonna end up there but it's not anything that resonates with their heart. It's not anything that they can grab onto and say, yes, I can imagine. It's the difference between saying, um, I've seen pictures of, of the beaches in Tahiti. Oh, I can imagine laying on the beach. That, that'd be cool, but the chances of me being there are pretty slim. Versus, I've got plane tickets to Tahiti. I'm gonna be there next week, and I can, ima- I can feel it. I can feel the sun on me. I can feel the warmth. I can feel the coolness of the Mai Tai on my hand. There's a difference between I've heard of it, I can sort of picture it, and I can imagine because I'm going to be there. And I think there are so many people who are in that place where a faint, you know, faint imagination is all they've got. And a lot of that stems from the fact that the enemy wants to lie to us and tell us that we don't deserve to be there. You've done too many wrong things in your life. In fact, some of you are sitting here right now going, you don't know what I did on the way over here, much less in my life some day in the distant past. The enemy takes those things that we do, our little things that we consider failures, and the enemy takes them and he blows them up into our head to the point where we disqualify ourselves from standing in the Father's presence. I think about my past, I was going to talk about it later in my message, but my past, let me tell you a little bit about my past. I grew up in a household that knew of Jesus, but I didn't know Jesus. I went to a VBS when I was a kid, and I kind of knew some of the stories, but really, in general, our household, and and me in particular, I didn't have any use for Jesus, so we just kind of lived our lives, it was no different, you would drive by a church, it was no different than driving by a McDonald's, oh, there's a church, doesn't have anything for me and that's the way I grew up then I moved into into school and in my school years middle school and high school especially um, I was a fighter constantly fought and it wasn't because I was a bully I was I was picked on I was being bullied and I ended up in fights at least once a week constantly 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 which distanced me even more from thinking about God or anything spiritual. It was just surviving. Fast forward then to when I get a car. I was big into into hot rods and drag racing and going fast and all this stuff. So build this hot rod Camaro, and I'm drag racing it, and not up at Vandermeer legally. I'm doing it up and down Broadway, doing it up and down Colfax. Three nights a week at least, okay? Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, we would go out cruising, my friends and I, we'd go up and we'd drive around. And then when we got tired of doing that, we would find a, a nightclub downtown. Usually this place down in Wazi named Thirsty's. Anybody? Anybody? remember a place called Thirsty's down on Wazi? We'd go down there. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday was ladies' night, so we'd go back there. <laughs> Every single one of those nights, I can sit here right now and say, I could have and should have been arrested on the way home because I shouldn't have been driving. And I knew it, but I didn't care. I'm like, whatever, that's for losers who get pulled over. I'm, I'm not one of those. I'm not gonna get pulled over. I'm too smart for that. Got through high school by the skin of my teeth, only just by barely working the system enough to know how many classes I could miss and what my GPA absolutely had to be to get through high school. I had no visions of the future. I had no thoughts of what came next. I had no idea about anything other than I had grown up. My father was a mechanic, and I had been working by that time since I was two years old, off and on, just helping my dad in the garage with cars, and then eventually at the shop. And, and that's, what, that's what my life was going to be. I was just going to be a mechanic. If I was lucky, I might move into management at some point, but it'd be in the car dealership. And that was my life. That's what I had in my mind. And then I had an experience with Jesus. That experience with Jesus changed me, but not without a fight. Because the devil, the old man inside of me said, you have done too many things. That teenager driving drunk home in the middle of the night from downtown, that guy can't possibly come to know Jesus and live like these other people who have all their lives together and always have. That's what I thought when I went to church. When I would go to church, I'd look around at everybody else and I'd go, man, you folks have it together. You know Jesus. You've lived your whole life knowing him. You pray several times a day. You've got it going on. I don't fit in with you guys. I'm not worthy of this. And so I'd listen to the messages, and I was excited about getting to know Christ because I know that he made himself real to me. But I didn't feel worthy of that. I'm like, what do I have to do to earn this? What can I possibly do to earn this? Because they're telling me that he knows everything that I've done from day one. And if he knows that, there's no way he's got any plans for me. But he did. So fast forward to now, and it's a long story for another day. But I'm so blessed that God takes everything that we have been through and not only redeems it and It does not affect the plans and purposes that he has for you. What you've been through or what you've done or where your mindset is or what you did today. Doesn't matter. None of that. Our God is a God of redemption. And not only does he allow you to serve in the kingdom regardless of your background, but he uses those things that we've been through to slap the enemy in the face. I went through a divorce before I met Gabe horrible thing. Divorce is a horrible thing, but God redeemed that in a way that I can now speak to people who are going through or contemplating it or who have done it in a way that I could never have before. I know people who have been drug addicted and different things like that, and they can use their experiences in ways that I never could. God redeems everything. And so the whole point of this message, I've got so many notes and things that I wanted to do But the point of this message is our God is a God of hope. He's a God of redemption. And there's nothing that you could do that would take you out of his hand. He's got a purpose for you. And there's nothing that you've done that disqualifies you from that. Let's look at our scriptures here and let's look at one of the best examples in the Bible. Best examples, period, that you can find of what God can do with us. All right. So let's go our scripture for that. We're in we're in Acts. We're working our way through Acts. So we know in Acts 1:8 where it starts out and the Holy Spirit has come upon the apostles, come upon the disciples, and the reason that that happened was to equip them, to enable them to have everything that they needed to go out and spread the gospel of Jesus. So that's where we are. And then last week I taught about Stephen Stephen, a dedicated, faithful disciple of Christ, and he gets stoned to death. Not a happy ending on the surface. But then we fast forward, actually at the end of that story as it goes into the next one. The first scripture I want to share with you. This is Stephen is is being stoned, Acts 7, 58. When they had driven him out of the city, that's Stephen, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul is probably the greatest story of redemption ever. And the coolest thing about it is it's true. It's not just a Hollywood story. It is true. And it's amazing. We have this image. This is the same image I showed last week. So this is Stephen over on the left. He's being stoned. There's, there's God the Father and Jesus at his right hand. There's angels overseeing. And then this down here, near as I can tell in this painting, this down here, this is going to be Saul. And Saul is kind of just sitting off to the side, and he's kind of guarding everybody's cloaks. You see, they've, they've taken off their cloaks, and they're down to just their tunic, which we would call underwear. Okay, That's what they're wearing, and their cloaks are over here. And Saul is just, is just guarding their cloaks. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But at this point, could you look at this and think, was Saul a bad guy? Was he just in the wrong place at the wrong time? Was he a part of this? How much involvement did he have? There are people who say that Saul was was there because he was supervising this whole thing. He didn't want to get his hands dirty because he was too high and mighty for that. I think we'll see pretty quickly that that's not where his mindset probably was. But We can talk about that a little bit later, but that's where we are. Saul, Saul is just kind of sitting off to the side. Now, I want to ask you one thing. Why, why did they even remove their cloaks? Okay, why did, why did they strip down to their underwear? Again, essentially, it looks like they're wearing a lot, but why did they do that in order to stone Stephen? What's that? So they didn't get splattered with blood. It's very possible they couldn't just walk down or, you know, go home and stick their cloak in, the, in their washing machine and clean it. It's possible that they could have been. There's a, I don't have the answer, by the way. I've just got some ideas. Scripture doesn't really say why they did it, just that they did it. Could have been that it was hot and they were heavy and you could more effectively stone somebody if you take them off. Remember last week when I was talking about Stephen, I talked about the fact that the Greeks who raised the, the concern about Stephen, who were really kind of pushing this act, was a group of, of what was called Hellenistic Greeks. If you're here, you remember that I, that I taught that they were Greek-speaking Jews from outside provinces. Some of them actually from Greece, but from other places, but they were Greek-speaking. And the term Hellenistic means that they kind of followed a lot of the Greek traditions, one of the things that was really markedly different between Jews and Greeks at the time was that Jews in general were pretty modest people. They were fairly modest as a culture. While on the other hand, Greeks, what were Greeks doing at this time? Okay, Olympics and different kind of sports competitions. And what would they would do? They would strip down. They would, they would compete naked. So they would complete, compete in the arenas totally naked. In fact, depending on what accounts of history you read, they were looking for excuses to strip down and be naked and wrestle. That's another story. But it's possible that they were just kind of following sort of the Greek tradition, like, hey, this is, you know, semi-athletic, we're stoning, we're really exerting ourselves, it's hot, we have our tunics on, we don't want our, our cloaks, we don't want them to get bloody, so we strip down. This is kind of where they are, but here I want to throw out another possibility They wanted to put out the image that they were really holy. In fact, the reason that they were doing this to Stephen is because he was speaking heresy. He was blaspheming, right? So this is why they wanted to do that. The image to me of somebody taking off their outer garment is you're taking off, you've heard of putting on airs, okay? You're putting on an image. When you take your cloak off, you're taking that image off, but only for a moment. We're going to set aside this image of propriety and holiness and engage in something that's absolutely brutal. And the thing is, they weren't doing it. They knew that the accusations were false, that they had caused the accusations to be raised. So this wasn't a righteous stoning. They weren't saying, He had to be stoned in order to protect and defend our God, who doesn't need our protection and defense, by the way. They knew that this was not a righteous act, and so they were taking off that air of righteousness that their cloaks were, setting them aside for the time to do this act, and then they would put them back on. That's just what this speaks to me. We do this all the time. We put on these airs of who we want to be, who we want to portray ourselves to be, and let me tell you, that is so damaging for multiple ways. Think about the story I told of of accepting Jesus and then looking around at people and going, these people all have it together. Most of them didn't. Probably none of them really had it together. They were all sinners like me. We've all got our faults. But what if, as we came into church, instead of putting on a name tag, we put on a tag that said what our thing was. I'm an alcoholic. I have an anger problem. I'm unemployed and can't make my bills. That would be so much more real. But I tell you, that's how God sees us. He knows what our things are. But Jesus paid the price for us, so we don't have to be seen that way. But that doesn't mean we have the right or the, or the ability to put on these airs and pretend that we're something we're not. We shouldn't be doing that. Our greatest testimony is where we've come from and what we've done, just like the story of Saul. So they laid these robes, all their, all their, uh, their robes, their cloaks at Saul's feet. Number he didn't, you see from this, he didn't directly participate in the execution. He didn't throw any stones. He was just there but it also directly links him to them. He's obviously one of them. And he obviously approves of it because he's there. And I don't know why his hands are outstretched unless he's reaching for another, another cloak. But he was there. He approved of it. He's definitely linked to them. So this is where we are when we move into the scripture that we're really going to kind of tear apart today, which is Acts 8, 1 to 3. Acts 8, 1 to 3, reads like this. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, that's Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women he would put them in prison. Is that the kind of guy God can use? Is that the, guy God, the kind of guy that God can redeem? Do you think, scripture says, that God knows the plans that he has for us. Okay, From before we're born. As we were knit together in our mother's womb, Scripture promises us that God had a purpose for us. Do you think while Saul was doing this, ravaging houses, traveling, dragging people out into the streets, men, women, children, having them in prison, do you think while this was happening, God was looking down going, Saul, I've got a purpose for you. I've got something for your life. Because I virtually guarantee you there's no one else that thought Saul had a higher purpose other than just persecuting Christians. Especially not as a follower of Jesus. Nobody saw that coming except for our Father. He knows what he's got for us. So who, let's go in, just before we get into that scripture, really quick, I just want to describe to you who Saul was. Okay, some of us know that he had a conversion and an experience and a name change. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. Pastor Gabe's going to teach on that. That's going to be fun. But right now I want to talk about who Saul of Tarsus was. Saul of Tarsus, born about 5 AD, give or take. Everything's approximate then. They didn't have records. So you kind of determine when things happened by doing the math and counting backwards from known events and things like that. So it was give or take 5 AD in the city of Tarsus, okay, which is the capital of a province in Turkey named Cilicia. And so this is where he was from. It was a big city, big city, big cultural trade center, lots of universities, lots of higher learning, all kinds of things there going on in Tarsus. It was, it was kind of a big deal. Saul was born to Jewish parents who possessed Roman citizenship. Very uncommon, by the way. But it was also a big deal. At that time, having Roman citizenship was almost a get-out-of-jail-free card. You could travel anywhere. You could do anything. And it was very difficult for anybody to persecute you or prosecute you or even arrest you without permission from governors and things. It was a big deal. So he was raised as a Jew of of parents who had Roman citizenship. Um, he had one sister. His sister was an older sister. She was actually living in Jerusalem as Saul was, was growing up, going to middle school or whatever we call that, getting his kind of lower education up there in Tarsus. Now, um, he wasn't anything very impressive. He wasn't like this massive. You sometimes see pictures and he looks like this big imposing figure. But Scripture tells us different, that not only was he just a regular dude, but he wasn't even much of a regular guy either. In Second Corinthians 10.10, 10, it actually says, his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. This is actually the Corinthians speaking about Paul, like saying, why do we listen to this guy? He's, he's ugly and he can't speak well. So that's what the Corinthians say of him. He also had this condition, another message for another day that, that he refers to as a thorn, kind of a, of a chronic, some sort of a condition, something that he had. So he wasn't, wasn't this big, imposing, hulking kind of a guy that you'd look at and go, wow, that's a, that's a serious dude. He wasn't really that. You know, his profession, the profession of his dad, and then, and then his profession was as a tent maker. which as we go through Scripture and we hear more about him, we check in with him from time to time, And he's still a tent maker. What this tells us, tells us two things. One, he's a tent maker. But what it really tells us is that he's got to work for a living. He's a blue collar kind of guy. His parents weren't super rich to where they could say, hey, we're going to send you off to university and you you don't have to work. Okay, he was a working kind of a dude. And his parents weren't super well off. They were, however, well off enough to send him to Jerusalem for some schooling, so he took his, his undergrad, if you will, in Tarsus. But then, at about the age of fifteen, remember their education started early. So, at the age of fifteen, give or take, he moves into um, he moves into Jerusalem, and he starts taking some some uh, some Hebrew, some Latin. Um, he starts getting his education in the rabbinical school under a rabbi named Gamaliel. Anybody, is the name Gamaliel familiar to anybody? Okay, Gamaliel is the one that when they were, when they had drug uh, Peter and John in before the Sanhedrin, or before the Pharisees, Gamaliel's actually the one rabbi that stood up and kind of was a voice of moderation. Remember that? And this, this is what he said, let's see, I've got it, um, <laughs> Acts five thirty-eight thirty-nine. we don't have it on the screen, but this is what Gamaliel said. So in the present case, he's talking about Peter and John. He says, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan of action is of men, the plan that they are doing, it'll be overthrown. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may be even found to be fighting against God. So he's a smart guy. Gamaliel is a smart guy. He's a rabbi. He's a famous rabbi. So if you know anything about Jewish culture or tradition, like their, their most famous historical big deal rabbi is a guy named Hillel. Okay, and Rabbi Hillel is very well known in that culture. He was like the original man. He's, he's Socrates in the, in the Hebrew tradition, right? And Gamaliel studied under Hillel. So we have a long line here. This is a bit, this is like going to the Harvard of rabbinical schools, okay? The rabbi, uh, like the Harvard of temples. Paul, Saul at the time is going to this very well-known, very prestigious school, learning under this incredibly influential and prestigious rabbi named Gamaliel. So he's getting a fantastic education. Again, learning, not only does he know Hebrew, but he learns Greek and he learns Latin. He learns all these things. And this is about 15 or 20 AD or so that he's there studying under Hillel. a super, uh, uh, under Gamaliel that is, an extremely in-depth and exhaustive study of the law. Remember, Gamaliel and then also Saul were Pharisees. Pharisees knew the law backwards, forwards, inside and out, and up and down. That's what they did. And their whole thing was, let's adhere to the law better than everyone else. And by doing that, God will bless us. So this is where he is. He's going to this fantastic school. Why do you think then that he was so rabid? If he studied under Gamaliel, if he was studying under Gamaliel, who was a moderate a voice of reason, okay? Why do you think Saul, when he got the chance, became so incredibly rabid, for lack of a better word? We'll see that he, he travels, and we've seen he's ravaging people. He's dragging people out of houses, and man, he is, he is going after it with zeal, and he's being ruthless, Why do you think a young man coming from an influence like that would be so ruthless like that? It doesn't really say. The word doesn't say, but here's what my study points out to me. That he was ready to make a name for himself. He was just turning 30. He was just about 30 years old, which... By the way, side note, is probably why he wasn't actually casting stones. See, at 30 years old in the Hebrew culture, that was the age of responsibility. That's the age at which a lot of things happen. That's the age at which um, you could become a priest. 30 years old is the age at which you could become a priest. 30 years old is the age at which um, Jesus began his ministry. 30 years old is the age at which John the Baptist came out of the wilderness. Um, 30 years old, Joseph was 30 when he was promoted to second in command under Pharaoh, okay? Um, David became king when he was 30. Ezekiel was called to be a prophet at the age of 30. 30 years old was a big deal in that culture, and that In my study, it shows to me that he was probably not quite yet 30, which is why he wasn't participating in the stoning, but he was there and he was holding cloaks. Now you picture a young man, he had gone through the Harvard of of schools, learned from the absolute best educators, and he was expected now to do big things. And just about this same time, he's turning 30, whether he just turned 30 or was about to, We don't know that. It's not important. But in that range, that's when he reaches that age. Okay, now it's time for you to go and perform your ministry. And at that same time, this is going on. This group of Christians, the way is starting to blow up and it's starting to become a problem. And so Paul, Saul, see I keep doing that. Saul is essentially deputized by the Sanhedrin to go and do these things. And he wants to do it with zeal. And this is his chance to make his name and to become known. That's why I believe that he had so much zeal when doing this. But let's look at the scripture and let's kind of pull it apart piece by piece. Acts 8, 1-3. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except Jerusalem the apostles. That's verse one. Verse one, first of all, like I said, he was basically deputized by the Sanhedrin, given all rights and all authority to go and do this thing. That's why he was able to travel everywhere. And all he needed was just a letter. They gave him a letter saying, we authorize you to go into this town or that town and and stop this growing problem. So he was deputized by them. And it said they scattered. So they scattered the apostles. This is a good thing, or they scattered the disciples, but not the apostles. Now let me ask you this: where it says um, they scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So that what that means is this church of twenty thousand plus strong was scattered, but the apostles actually stayed. They stayed behind great personal danger to stay behind in Jerusalem when this is all going on. This is a bad time to openly be a Christian in Jerusalem, but why do you think they stayed? Was this a matter of going down with the ship? Was it a matter of pride? Or maybe the Holy Spirit spoke to them and just said, I need you to stay there and shepherd this church. Again, scripture doesn't tell us but I have to believe that they were hearing from God. They were hearing from the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that can give you that supernatural peace and comfort and determination and the ability to stand against anything that comes your way. And so I think that's exactly what we see going on here. Verse 2 says, Some devout men, some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. Again, some devout men, that was going to be um, that they were, they were Jews. They were Jews from the temple. Okay, that's that's what he would be talking about, what Luke would be saying when he said devout men. These are actually Jews from the temple, probably part of the Hellenistic Jews. And some instances, some studies say that it was those who disagreed with Stephen being stoned to begin with. They were making lamentation over him. Now, this is interesting in itself because I don't know if you remember or if you've ever seen that in... In Hebrew culture, when somebody is put to death or dies a natural death, they have mourners who will follow them through the streets in their funeral procession, mourning and wailing and making all kinds of noise and racket to honor the person who has died. Now, it's different in cases where a criminal is put to death, but even then, sometimes they would actually hire mourners, professional mourners, to travel behind a procession, putting up just an appropriate amount of, of lamentation, it says. This is different though. The law the law actually said that in the cases where someone was stoned to death or was put to death for, for heresy, um, they didn't deserve that. Not only didn't they deserve that, but it was, it was strictly forbidden. So the fact that these devout men we're burying him and making loud lamentation over him. That indicates to us that that's, that's basically a protest. It's their way of protesting. It's saying our culture says we're going to do this. We don't believe that, that he was blaspheming the spirit. We don't believe that he was put to death rightly. So we're going to protest by giving him a burial and by mourning over him. That's what that says. There's a lot that goes on in just that little, that little passage there. But then the one that we're really going to look at is the very last one. Saul began ravishing, ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. What's ravaging look like? What's that look like? When you picture ravaging, what do you picture? It's, it's violent without a doubt but I think it's probably extremely violent. Ravaging, that word, we translate that as ravaging. Actually, in the Greek, what that translates to, I'm not even going to try and pronounce it, but it's a word that's used when a wild animal captures its prey and tears it apart to eat it. That's that image. Remember, Hebrew and Greek are picture languages, so each word is is a picture, it's a thought more than just a specific word. And that word ravaging means to tear apart as a predator tears its prey apart. That's a picture of a whole lot more than just peaceful, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to capture you and I'm going to take you in and let the Sanhedrin deal with you. He's doing this with gusto and he's all in. There's no halfway about this. He's going after it. Saul himself describes it like this in Galatians 1.13. This is Paul writing this, and he says, for you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. He himself says, I persecuted them beyond measure. Okay, this was a fairly brutal society. You see their issue of justice is stoning someone to death in, in the street, and that would be considered somewhat daily occurrence. He says beyond measure is what I did. And then in Acts 26.10, Luke documents again, Paul saying this, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. So for the most part, he didn't kill them unless it was accidental, but he would drag them into the Sanhedrin, and then they would, they would have a trial, a mock trial for all intents and purposes, and put them to death. Some accounts put the number of, of Christians, remember they didn't call themselves Christians at the time, they were called the way, followers of Jesus, anything like that. But some accounts put the number that actually were put to death in this time period at 2,000. 2000, That's 10% of the church, of the entire church, being put to death. There's not a whole lot of detail about actually what the account looks like. About how did he, you know, it says he went into houses and drugged them out and he ravaged them. And, And we can kind of infer in our minds what that looks like. But there's not an awful lot of detail about what that really looked like. And if you think about who wrote Acts, who wrote Acts? It was Luke. And if you think about when he wrote Acts, Luke wrote Acts probably while Paul was in prison. Luke had been traveling with Paul. They were friends, they were traveling together. Luke knew the new man. He knew Paul. This Saul was a whole different guy. And so when he wrote the accounts of it, I don't think he dwelled too much on what happened, only that it did happen because it didn't matter anymore. By that point, Saul had become Paul and God was in the process of redeeming everything that he had been through. And so it's not important to go into grisly detail on what happened, but what is important is that it did happen. And it happened not just by accident. It was a willful, zealous Terrible persecution that Saul was involved in. He wasn't just an innocent bystander. He did this for about six months. It was about six months that he, from the time that he was commissioned to go out and capture and persecute and drag in the Christians from the time that he had his experience with Christ. We know this because in Acts 9 1 it says, now Saul, this is Luke documenting this, it says Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And then it goes on. It says he went to the chief priest and asked for permission to travel to Damascus. And it's on that trip that he actually meets Christ and has his experience. So that's about a six-month, six-month time span. So when we look at this what's the good news in this? What is the good news? I try and take every, every teaching, every section of scripture, and make sure that it points to Jesus, because it does. But I think it's my job to illustrate the fact that it does, because you can read through this and just go, man, that was a bad guy. I can't wait to see what happens to him. Like in the movies, like anybody like movies that end the way they're supposed to end? Where the bad guy gets it, Right? That's how they're supposed to end. Movies don't typically end with the bad guy being redeemed. Unless they're Christian movies. Hollywood movies don't end with the bad guy being redeemed and going to do great things. It doesn't work like that. But in this case, it did. Had Saul, by this point, all the bad that he had done, all the murdering, all the, the murder that he was breathing against them. Can you imagine what breathing murder against somebody sounds like or what that is? Somebody who's done that. Has he gone too far for God to redeem? Has he done too much? What would you have done if you met Jesus? And I'm not going to steal Gabe Sanders. She's going to teach about this. But what would you have done if you met Jesus? Would you have said, I, I need to go hide because I've done too much to this risen Lord and to his followers. I've done too much. I can't possibly be used. And even if you were told otherwise, I can use you, you would say, mm, no, you don't know what I've done. That's the good news in this. Two great things can be learned. Number one, Acts 8.4, where the apostles are Scattered. Okay? Because of this persecution, the disciples are scattered throughout the world, and they actually begin the work of spreading the name of Jesus, spreading the good news throughout the entire world. That's when it started. Would that have started without this? I don't know. Most of us, our human nature is if we're comfortable where we are, we're going to stay where we are. We need to be made a little uncomfortable sometimes to move out even when it's something that we know ultimately we're supposed to do, we'll sit around and talk about it until it becomes uncomfortable and we're somehow forced to go out, right? I think that's what would have happened here. So that's the greatest thing that happened from this, but equally as important is that God redeemed this. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, one experience with Jesus changes everything. It changes your entire life You are worthy of being used by God for his purposes. You are worthy, equipped, and capable of sharing the good news of Jesus with those people that you meet. I don't care what your past is. I don't care what your present is, and neither does God. You were made for the purpose of sharing the good news of Jesus throughout the world. And you are worthy of that. God doesn't see you through the lens of what you did or who you are. He knows it, but he doesn't see you that way. What he sees you as is a perfect creation that he made for a reason. And that reason is to share in his his work of redeeming everyone and bringing everyone to the knowledge of who Jesus is. That's what we're for, and there's nothing that we can do. In fact, Paul says this in, in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says that we have it on the screen. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. He calls himself the foremost of sinners and says Christ Jesus came to redeem not only me, but everyone. Christ Jesus can take us no matter where we are. You are worthy. Jesus Christ deemed you worthy. Anything other than that is a lie. Anything other than that is a lie from the enemy, from the pit of hell that wants to tell you that anything that you do that's outside of all the perfect people around you disqualifies you for what God has for you. Now, it's not all about going to share Jesus. That's, our, that's what Jesus commands us to do is go and share the good news throughout the nations. But there's also blessing here on earth. God wants to bless you. He wants to share his heart with you. He wants to be with you, to speak with you, to walk with you. He wants those things. And anybody or anything that would tell you that you can't do that is lying to you. And there's so much of it these days. There's so much of it. And the enemy is more than happy to heap onto that and say, yeah, that thing that you did today and yesterday and the day before, that disqualifies you. So why don't you just go somewhere quietly and get your stuff together and then maybe... You can start easing into letting God use you. And guess what? That day never comes. There never comes a day where you look and go, I am perfect. God can use me now. That never happens. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that's where we all stand. But because of Jesus Christ, we are redeemed and we are worthy. Church, that's what you need to know. Look at all the things that Paul did. All the things that he did, how bad he was, how intentionally bad he was. It wasn't an accidental sin. He intentionally did all these things. And God said, I've got plans for you. Watch what I do with you. Not only do I have plans, but I'm going to use all this stuff that you're doing to smack the devil in the face. And that's what he does with us. So I want to do something for a couple minutes here. I know that there are people here, number one, there might be people here who don't even know Jesus at all. And he offers you this purpose and this salvation and this this peace in knowing who he is. This fellowship with the Father, he offers that to you and all you need to do is just accept him. Call him the Lord of your life. Admit him into your heart as your Lord and Savior. If you do that, you will be saved and you'll receive the Holy Spirit and you will be able to, to walk in that legacy that we see from Saul who becomes Paul and who does great things in the kingdom. And then there are people here who know of him, but don't know him like I was as a kid. And you need to know him now. You need to know him in your heart. And so for those two groups of people, and then the third group of people is those who think I've done too much and I am not worthy of serving the Lord of Lords. The enemy's lying to you right now, saying as soon as you get it together, then you can listen to a message like this. I can only imagine. Yeah, just don't even try to imagine now because that's not for you. There are people who are there. And so I want to do this. It's going to take some boldness. We don't do this very often, but I want to invite those people who are in one of those three areas because I don't want to single anybody out, but be bold. Listen to the Holy Spirit and you can come up front here. Come up front to the altar and I want the the prayer team will gather behind you and we're going to pray over you. We're going to pray that you would come against all the lies of the devil that tells you that you're not worthy to come to him. And that our Lord accepts you, who you are, where you are, what you have done. The things you've done, the things you're going to do tomorrow, he knows those things and he loves you and he gave himself for you anyway. So I'm going to ask Emily just to play quietly and we're going to pray over you. Anybody else? Be bold. There is no one here who is unredeemable in Jesus' eyes. He has already paid the price and all he asks is that you just accept him and everything that he has to offer, all of the love, all of the kindness, the blessings, the healing, everything that comes your way, and most of all, the purpose in his kingdom. So if you want to come up at any time, you can play on. And then we're going to move into a time after communion, or after this, into communion. So if the prayer team would just kind of gather around us here. So, only Father, we just thank you, Lord God, for who you are. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your unending love for us, for the fact that you never stop pursuing us. You see us with our faults, the good parts, the bad parts, the parts we pretend to be, and the parts that you know that we truly are. And you love all of those parts. You love us for who we are. You love us where we are. We don't have to fix anything to come to you. We don't have to be right before we come to you. We don't have to put on our finest cloak and our best outfits to come to you. Lord, you'll take us exactly where we are. You love the dirt and the smudges and the faults and everything that makes us who we are. Father, you love us anyway, and we thank you for that, your unending mercy. And so, Father, I just pray over everyone, those who are bold enough to come forward and those who are sitting in the seats praying this very same thing, Lord God, that you would just manifest yourself in their lives in a greater way than ever before, that they would not walk a day, there would not be a minute of a day when they didn't know your voice, when they didn't literally feel your arms wrapped around them, pulling them in, saying, I love you, my daughter, I love you, my son. I love who you are and everything that you are and I have so much for you. Father is telling me that he's just he's got so much planned for all of you that you can't even imagine and that accepting the fact that you don't have to be perfect allows him to come into your life in greater ways than ever before. We open our hearts to you, Father. We surrender all pretense of who we think we should be and we accept who you made us to be. We thank you. We thank you for what you do. Lord, I thank you for what you do for us and what you're going to do in us. Your unending mercy and love. Father, we praise you for the boldness of those who step forward and accept you and accept your love. We thank you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Bless you. Bless you. So there's no better way to celebrate what God has done for us than to take communion and remembering Jesus and what he did for us. So as the worship team plays on now, we're going to move into communion. At the crosses, we have juice and bread and you can just dip the bread in there. Up front here, my wife and I will be serving. We've got wine. But let's do this again. As I say, let's not do this just because now's the time when we do this. Let's do this with grateful and thankful hearts that it's because of what Jesus did that we can accept him. It's because of what he did that we are fully reconciled with the Father. We are adopted into the family of Christ. We are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. are fully reconciled and spotless in his sight because of what Jesus did. Let's move into communion in celebration of that. Amen? Thank you, guys.
1: God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. Give me vision to see things like you do. God, I look to you. You're where my help comes from. Give me wisdom. You know just what to do. vision to see things like you do God I look to you you're where my help comes from give me wisdom you know just what to do
0: first time to follow Christ or if this is a recommitment, but whether that's you or you know somebody, I just want to let you know we've got these books. It's called A New Christian's Handbook. We've got several of them in a basket back by that back door. Please grab one if this is something you think would be helpful for you. It just helps you navigate what it means to be a new Christian, kind of cuts through a lot of the churchy stuff that's hard to understand. Um, but if you know somebody who could be blessed by this, please grab one and make sure that it gets into their hands. Thank you, guys.